Greetings, and thank you for joining me for quite excellent episode number 46. This week's poem is Frosting by Langston Hughes. Originally published in 1966 in the magazine The Crisis, the official magazine of the NAACP, started by W.E.B. Du Bois back in 1910. It is easily the shortest poem we've used in class, even if the ideas in it are enormous. I can't wait to see what my students do with it. Before we get to Hughes, we need to return to C.K. Williams' poem, The Hearth. I love this poem, especially the way the poet uses language to inventive effect, describing the plastic coffee cup as perching before it begins to collapse in an almost creaturely way is a clever bit of personification that seems to make the cup almost whimsical until Williams makes the melting coffee cup an analogy for the burning of a soldier in a napalm explosion. The language here is specific and even beautiful in how painterly it captures its moments, but that doesn't make those moments any less terrible to witness. Here's the poem. The Hearth, C.K. Williams. Part 1. Alone, after the news on a bitter evening in the country, sleet slashing the stubbled fields, the river ice. I keep stirring up the recalcitrant fire. But when I throw my plastic coffee cup in with new kindling, it perches intact on a log for a strangely long time, as though uncertain what to do, until, in a somewhat reluctant, almost creaturely way, it dents, collapses, and decomposes to a dark slime untwining itself on the stone hearth. I once knew someone, who was caught in a fire and made it sound something like that. He'd been loading a bomber, and a napalm shell had gone off. Flung from the flames, at first he felt nothing, and thought he'd been spared, but then came the pain, then the hideous dark. He'd been blinded, and so badly charred he spent years in recovery, agonizing debridements, grafts, learning to speak through a mouth without lips, to read braille with fingers lavaed with scar, to not want to die. Though that never happened, he swore, even years later, with a family, that if he were back there, this time allowed to put himself out of his misery, he would. Part 2 There was dying here tonight after dusk by the road. An owl, eyes fixed and flared, breast so winter-white he seemed to shine a searchlight on himself, helicoptered near a wire fence, then suddenly banked, plunged, and vanished into swallowing dark with his prey. Such an uncomplicated departure, no detonation, nothing to mourn. If the creature being torn from its life made a sound, I didn't hear it. But in truth, I wasn't listening. I was thinking, as I often do these days, of war. I was thinking of my children and their children, of the more than fear I fear for them, and then of radar, rockets, shrapnel, cities raised, soil poisoned for a thousand generations, of suffering so vast it nullifies everything else. I stood 
in the wind and the raw cold, wondering how those with power over us can affect such things, and by what cynical reasoning pardon themselves. The fire's ablaze now. Its glow on the windows takes the night even darker, but it barely keeps the room warm. I stoke it again and crouch closer. So I want to start by talking about how students saw the speaker here. A student says that the speaker conveys helplessness and a broken hope by beginning with the word alone, already starting off the poem somber by the use of this one word. The first word is just so lonely that in that it establishes tone. Another student describes the way in which the speaker uses language as doing so with clarity and conciseness comparable to a machine gun. And if that first word is doing so much language, I get that. I think it makes sense. Another points to a kind of pessimistic word choice and overall indifferent tone. It displays the adverse effects that war can have on a person's mind. And yet what's described in the poem makes the speaker think of their children and their children's children. And the more than fear they feel for them. This isn't indifference. At the end, according to a student, the speaker talks about how the fire is barely keeping them warm. Everything is just colder than before. And so we have a situation in which we have a a distant, emotionally distant speaker that is simultaneously concerned with those they love and yet in a place that still feels pretty cold. A student says that it seems that the author is tired of endless wars, and he can closely relate to the sufferings of those involved. And of course, the presentation of war is important. A student says the narrator brings us through the bitter details of the evenings during wartime, with another and a few pointing to specific language choices, such as where it says radar, rockets, shrapnel, cities raised, soil poisoned. All of this, according to his student, is as though the speaker's having flashbacks of what he saw outside the war. It shows the bitter sacrifice that comes with war. And so there's this fear, his children, or of children maybe in general, of having to experience this kind of war, these features of radar and rockets and shrapnel and all this cold. And that's all brought into the present. A student points to where it says, there was dying here tonight, as though the town in which the speaker is now speaking could be a battlefield. And so when the speaker speaks of war, there is a heavy burden being placed. And this leads one student to think that maybe there is a figurative aspect to this. A student says that maybe there's a war inside of them and not just a literal war. There's a war of thought, of feeling that's happening internally. And when we think of figurative use and and analogy, I think it's important here to look at the fire. One student said that the fire inside the hearth was pictured to be intense and destructive, with another pointing to vivid words emphasize the pain and agony of war. It makes the hearth seem less like a place that brings warmth and safety, but instead it brings fear and harsh memories. And at one point it uses the word caught in fire, and it suggests the need to be careful and to stay safe, to not become trapped and victimized. Many students pointed to the comparison between the coffee cup and the man one student says that the comparison between the burning man and the disintegrated coffee cup, a student said that this shows the raw emotion and just the excruciating pain felt by the man in the fire. But it's not just that hearth, it's not just that fire. There are other changes, 
such as student notes, from very violent war to majestic nature. The poem shifts from dense collapses and decomposes to an owl eyes fixed flared, breast so winter white he seemed to shine. These are beautiful images of nature, but they're right next to all of this violence. Another says that the owl hunting for its prey, it shows that the nature of death has changed in the poem. It is a natural thing that happens. A different student says this emphasizes the trauma in war by comparing the violence in nature to similar war experiences. It is uncompromising, it is brutal, and it's just impossible to avoid, maybe. Another saw this as tonal. According to a student, the poem connects human death to any other animal's death. And when a wild animal dies, there's no reason even to mourn. And if that's the case, then why should we mourn this man brutalized in the napalm fire? Why should we mourn anyone that is dead? It really makes that sacrifice and that loss so much less heroic and less capable of being appreciated. It's unpleasant, in fact, in the way it does this. And that is an important part of this poem. Many students pointed to how this poem comments on the effect that the war has. One says, the poem is about the fear of war and what it has left behind. Another says that it's, this is a poem about two stories of the speaker's suffering, where the first is about the immediate effects of violence. We get the, the man in the napalm and all that. But then the other part, the second part of the poem, is really about the long-term effects of war, and that is the way that it affects children and the future. A different student said that while he looks back on the past and what he could have done, we can look forward as readers, as he does a little bit in part two, and be inspired by what maybe he can accomplish. I'm not sure I necessarily see that inspiration here, but certainly there's at least a, a little bit of hope for his children and for maybe those children's children. A student says the author pays a lot of attention to the loved ones and other civilians instead of neglecting them. And that's an interesting point. It does emphasize that war is destructive, but it also requires us to think of the human cost outside of a battlefield. But that human cost in the battlefield remains at the center of this poem, with the students pointing to the poem's final lines, saying that to many other soldiers, they feel like pawns in a game between high-ranking people in the world who usually don't face the effects of the war head-on like a soldier does. And so the suffering that comes with war happens to those closest to it and those closest to them. Now, before we move on to our next poem, I want to point out some great use of our secret passphrase last week, which was diction. Uh, this is a word that just means word choice. And so every time you speak or write, you are exercising your use of diction, which is why you can't just say someone uses diction. It's like saying, oh, they use words. Yes. They did. But my students had a lot of really interesting ways to describe the language choices in this poem, and I just wanted to share quickly a list of the different ways diction was described. We have warlike diction, depressing diction, imaginative diction, gruesome, painful, abstract diction, contrasting, cynical, regretful diction. I think all of those are in here in different measures and different parts. And using language like that to describe the words that have been chosen for the poem help us understand how tone is created. Lovely choices, everybody. Love it. Now, 
Our next poem is Frosting by Langston Hughes. Among all the wonderful analysis my students did, I noticed something happening in the writing that I wanted to address. Well, okay, two things. One was using the phrase, paint a picture, sometimes in someone's head, actually. It is a true fact that every time a student writes the phrase or some variation of it, an English teacher feels an immediate and devastating sense of loss. But the other thing I wanted to address actually informs this week's poem. My students keep finding just wonderful evidence to use in their analysis, but it seems they are finding too much of it sometimes. It can have the effect of making the writing they produce feel a bit like summary. I see this at all levels of English instruction, by the way. This is not limited to freshmen even a little bit. But when too many things are being quoted from the source text, a response becomes a collection of things that are in the text, often in the same order they originally appeared. In AP literature materials, this is sometimes called summary through quotation. To ensure that students don't do this on our next response, I wanted to make sure that our next poem is shorter. And this also gives us a break. We've had some longer poems lately. So our next poem is shorter. It's insanely short, even. It is Langston Hughes' poem, Frosting, which has just 18 words, only eight lines, and only three pieces of punctuation, one possessive apostrophe, one M dash, and a period at the very end. Using a f so few words is an example of an artist trying to be as concise as possible. Not a single word is unnecessary. Nothing here is just ornamentation. In a poem so short, each word could be the focus of analysis because of how deliberate everything else must be. This is also our secret passphrase, deliberate. You can use any variation of this word. With a poem this short, students are going to have to work real hard to use their language to explain what each word and phrase means that is quoted, and that's good. I want students explaining what a word means, and why it means what they say it means, and how it supports what their claim about the entire poem happens to be. But I also want them to keep the writing interesting, to make sure that there's variety. If too many words are too similar in the writing, maybe using the same language repeatedly or having the same number of words in their sentences, the writing gets boring. One way to make sure there are writing doesn't go this way is to look closely at the beginnings of our sentences and make sure we aren't repeating ourselves. For this reason, the writing task this week is to ensure that no sentences in our paragraphs start the same way. So don't use the same word or words to start different sentences, and don't start multiple sentences with quotation marks either. If Hughes can be so careful with his word selection, we can attempt to do the same. A quick note, you might recognize this poet. Langston Hughes is the author of Harlem, which we covered back in November. It may be helpful as you read and listen to this poem that it was penned by a poet whose voice and activism were important for generations and remain important today. Here's the poem. Langston Hughes, Frosting. Freedom is just frosting on somebody else's cake. And so must be till we learn how to bake. Students, be sure to use the word deliberate or some version of it for your secret passphrase and be sure that you don't have any two sentences that start the same way as this is your writing task for the week.
And don't forget about our previous writing tasks. These are good writing practices no matter what we are doing. So consider including a brief summary, short or single word quotations, and maybe a semicolon. Avoid the word quote and use more than one quote in your sentences. And maybe avoid saying anything paints a picture. I'll gladly explain why you should avoid this at all costs in class if you'd like. But the more I read it, the more I'm sure I'm being murdered. Because of how short this poem is, also be sure that you're using your forward slashes correctly. You won't need double slashes at all. There is only one stanza. Remember to complete your paragraph length response by Wednesday, February 24th, 2021, and two replies to the responses of your peers by the Friday that ends the week. Your paragraph length response should include a tag and make a claim in the opening sentence or two. And any evidence you use should be short, embedded smoothly into your sentences, and fully explained. A quick reminder about claims. They must require proof. If your first sentence just says that this is a poem about freedom, this is not a claim. Your claim cannot be obvious. Be sure to read the assignment instructions for a full breakdown of the expectations. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, or would like our class to direct an eye toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities, and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 46 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, you discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent. Excellent.